0: Hi, this is Bianca Stone. Welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. Hey, I wanted to start by saying thank you to Daniel Bonehorst for sending me your little pocket palms book. That was really sweet to the Ruth Stonehouse. And saying how much you like listening to the podcast. Um such a beautiful little book. Uh the first little pocket palm in here says open as the stretch of night before your casual introduction citrus season just like that it's always really good to know that you're listening to the podcast and and to hear about things you're enjoying and any any like thoughts that it's bringing up I you know I I really do appreciate it when people tell me so thank you and you can reach out to me on social media uh, at Bianca Stone and also, email me, bianca at Today on the podcast, I'm talking with a dear friend and collaborator, Candace Jensen. We are teaching a week-long retreat called The Unconscious Speaks in July. This retreat is full, so uh, it's, it, there's, there's no longer any application period open, but I think a lot of the themes that we're going to be exploring at that retreat I thought would be really helpful to bring onto the podcast and talk to you all about because this is a podcast about the psyche and poetry and what Candace and I are doing in person is bringing together the psyche and the soma. So we're bringing the body and mind uh, exploration of consciousness together. Candace is a visual artist, organizer, and poet and she's the co-founder and programming director of a really incredible nonprofit called Institute Polyculture Commons. She is also a practicing yoga instructor and she's certified in Tantric Hatha Yoga. And we and has studied m- many different kinds of yoga but specializes in Tantric Tantra Katha flow and Yoga Nidra. And I I don't know. I I think that there's so much misunderstanding and conversational interest in the mind-body dichotomy and the, right the the seeming dichotomy and that where where that divide dissolves and actually where it solidifies. And I think what Candace and I were were interested in um was starting conversations around uh, different states of consciousness and how to access them and how they may increase an ability to gain access to more generative creative flow states in both writing and editing our work and just being people in the world. So um, we're just talking today about everything that comes up with that and all the, all the, the complications there, too. I think um, I think it's it's just one of those endless discussions. Um, and there's just so much conversation going around uh, uh, you know in in the biomedical world and in the psychological uh, sciences and in the human sciences And, the, and, uh, and somehow that it, I think poets, although they deal so much, in the psyche and on the, on the paper, on the, on the paper, on the object of the paper. Uh, yet here we are, this, this strange body in the world. And um, this, this, this body that speaks in a different way than in words on the page in language out of the mouth. What, what else does the body, the body's very involved in poetry. Poetry is embodied language, it is breath, it is uh, movement, and yet it is not the body. So it's, it's, a, I think what I've become sort of interested in, in, in terms of like movement and yoga, uh, and, and the deeper conversation around those um, is the possibility of self exploration um, that can be had once you open up your toolkit to these various practices. Um, so please enjoy my conversation with Candace Jensen and until next time.
1: You want to talk about states of consciousness? If we're hiding in the intellect from embodiment, if we're hiding in the in the critical thinking from critically necessary feeling and, and sensory that's we're just missing out on a lot
0: am i recording Uh, am i entertaining am am i furthering consciousness am i trying to be loved am i trying to feel good am i being masochistic like all these questions are well they kind of are the work they are the prod they for me that's poetry all those questions It's weird how when you go into the body, you can also feel like you're not in the body anymore either. The more you're in it, the more vast it seems.
1: That tracks with all the yogic texts. Does it? <laughs> the interiority, the subtle realms. We think about that as going inward, about looking in, getting more and more subtle, more and more... Uh, small but it's actually an expansion practice it's bigger on the inside
0: Mm. is that the subtle body
1: subtle body uh is everywhere and everything i mean yes
0: (laughs) i think of it with poetry too the more the more precise and strange you've honed a line the more vast it seems.
1: Mm. it's.
0: I think it speaks to what keeps coming back is paradox and contradiction. Size is is not one thing yeah. here. Obviously the big is very small and the small is
1: incredibly big. Mm, it oscillates. Our experience of the interior or the exterior oscillates. I think this it also oscillates. is why sometimes when you really start to access either a deep state of meditation or the flow state that you get into when you're riding, um, you can almost experience an agoraphobia. There's like an enormity to that, and it can feel terrifying. I mean, yeah, that's the essence of the sublime the awe and the terror it hits you all at once
0: absolutely and I keep I was just Mary Ruffel has a great uh essay on fear and in that she acknowledges a form of dread which is what she is essentially talking about much of the time when she talks about fear as a form of love Um, Or rather dread, there is a form of dread that is combined with a love, uh, an awe in the presence of the divine. Mm. And I think this... I think we can all understand a, a a sense of dread that comes with incredible love um, nearing the void. The void. Mm. The void sort of informs love's um, infinitude, right? So. Uh, like that, that agoraphobia that happens in the, in, in the vastness
1: <clears throat> yeah the the subtle the subtle body or the subtle realm or the energetic field, there's all these different terms. Um, the awareness of it is what makes it scary uh, because we don't know how we relate to it. Right, because we identify so strongly um, with our simplified perspective of ego or our simplified perspective of the, the identity, who we are in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we start to get into that space, which you know, is part of creativity, part of where we access uh, creative matter, materia, that <laughs> gets transformed yeah. into the work that we make yeah, it it can feel overwhelming or it can feel um, impossible to navigate. How can you navigate something that's everywhere, right? It's like water um, or air.
0: Right, we make these little containers for it in order to navigate it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to contain I mean, our very body itself is like a form in which a poem is written and that is in itself a containment, but it intimates something uncontained, of course.
1: I mean, you must have something like that, some sort of architecture, vessel, container. You have to have something like that or it's all undifferentiated, right? I mean, that's actually really interesting because Tantra is a non-dual philosophy. uh, And so it uses duality all the time in order to access that um, impossibility of understanding the the non-dual nature of all things. That's sort of what we're talking about here. You you have to have that differentiation point. You have to have that duality so that you can have the conversation because otherwise it's a monologue.
0: (laughs) Right. And of course, this speaks to the relational in which the relational demands too. It it demands you and another. It's the poet and the reader. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's the third thing in there as well. But the space between the
1: the expression. Yeah. mm -hmm.
0: The third thing always must be acknowledged there, right? So we talk a lot, I talk a lot about the relational and in terms of psychoanalysis and in poetry, but, um, of course, Martin Buber's in the beginning is the relation and in the beginning is the word. Um, and this, this idea, uh, that we reject the Cartesian duality of, that has been so destructive throughout time as it's grown and is greatly misunderstood on many levels. But at the same time, I think it's not, we can't be dualistic about duality, right? So uh, there's, there's so much importance in, in difference and that in some way, I see poetry as a, right, it might even be this subtle body that negotiates difference and, and manages to, um, exist in that, in that, I think what you're saying that, that unification that is almost like we can't fathom it, Mm -hmm. um. I think we're getting very abstract very quickly,
1: <laughs> it's easy <to> which
0: do. <laughs> is easy for us to do. I want listeners to, to be with us on this. So, but this is the kind of conversation that I think we're interested in having at the retreat and that it can unfold naturally and include many different areas of thought Um
1: Right. Well, then also the things that come between thoughts, I think that is one of the most inspiring parts of organizing this retreat and this potential continued exploration, like, how do we oscillate from the intellect, and the thinking and the critical analysis and um, the mind matter. Uh, back into other states of knowingness, other aspects of consciousness. Uh, How do we do that? There's a necessity to come out of it in order to observe it uh, and then create new relationship to the things that we're thinking. I think that's what's cool about this whole concept, right?
0: Create new relationships with the things we are thinking. Exactly. I think... When we think of poetry retreats, we think of, oh, I come armed with my poems to be edited mm-hmm. or to be, t- and if if that, I think you come armed with your poem to share mm-hmm. and to have people respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we all get different things out of retreats and, um, and whether or not the way it's responded to is helpful is a question, I think, but what I'm interested in too is the, the states of in which we gain access to the poetry as inspiration. Mm-hmm. First of all, right? The evocation of the muse mm-hmm. and Figuring out the best way to be open to that occurrence, mm-hmm. right? We think of it as something we don't have to do anything for, you know, in order to get. It should just come to us. The muse should just come to mm-hmm. me.
1: But you have but, to make the space for the muse. That's you have to. There's that yeah, concept you, of sitting down to write every day, right? So that you're creating that. That space you're creating that routine to allow the muse to show up, but you also need productive boredom. You also need right. to be comfortable in the body. I mean, this is a big mm-hmm. this is a big thing that loops it back into the idea of yoga, but also anything yoga asana, any kind of movement, taking a taking a walk in the in the outdoors. There's right. something about moving the body, making sure the body is comfortable. Um, yoga asana itself the the postures that we do in yoga class you know those those are all just extensions of making sure the body's comfortable enough to actually sit and do meditation long enough to get something done in there <laughs> right in the yoga sutras there's almost no mention of yoga asana at all it appears so minimally and it's all about being comfortable in your seat it's all about being able to sit you can't to do, sit to be if in you're in post. terrible shape. You can't sit if your shoulder hurts. You yeah. can't be present for what, and you know this is sort of bridging things. You know, I'm, I'm messing around and paraphrasing the sutras here, but you can't be present for the muse to show up in your seat if you're being reminded that your body's uncomfortable and that you haven't rested well. I mean, this goes into a slightly different territory as well. The idea of artists being on retreat You are removed from the things that bother you on a daily basis. You're removed (laughs) from the things that are constantly sapping your creative energy. You are not caring for your children. You're not reminding your partner that they have a doctor appointment. You're not preparing dinner. You're able to tend to your rest. And when you have a rested artist, you have a productive artist uh we see that throughout the history of the art historical canon artists who have patrons artists who have family who are either willing or forced to be in caretaker mode for them they get shit done because yeah they get shit done got that cushion they've got that care they've got that sort of dialed in so this is Mm -hmm. what um this retreat is really trying to look at like how can we make the body of the poet comfortable how can we make the consciousness of the poet uh accessible sorry the unconscious of the poet the unconscious creative stuff accessible to the poet
0: right right and anyone in psychotherapy could tell you that there's a lot of negotiating the comfort of sitting in a chair in order to access the unconscious and get out of and get the conscious mind out of the way and get the ego mm-hmm. uh, the super ego mind out of the 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 editor that is happening in real time that is preventing you from speaking yeah uh, h- how to get them out of the way in order to really speak
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and what does that mean? what does that look like? It's easy to say, oh, oh, conscious mind bad, unconscious. You know, we want the what, whatever. It's not good and bad. No, it's not right? good and bad at all. <laughs> it, it's about the journey to get there, and the journey to get there is is the is the content in a way,
1: you know. So, um, the journey to get there is the content, or it's the door to the content, maybe. Right? Yeah. Wait
0: yeah well it's part of the content in that (laughs) it's interesting because poets will reflect on the journey in their poems Mm -hmm. and they need to take and it's not like you ever arrive right you you well you arrive in states of I think arriving is creating Mm. um and you need the frustration of learning how to speak and listen uh to the body and to the to the mind and to others. So, it's interesting too that this retreat will be about being together and being inside in in private at the same time. Yeah. Um,
1: right. It's not a silent retreat. It's not a retreat that's only about rest. There's provocation. Provocation, I think, is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Right. There must be this level of antagonism. You have to have something to respond to. You have to have that oscillation, I'll use that word again, um, coming in and out of comfort, pushing up against that which is comfortable, that which is uncomfortable, and navigating that. But then you do have to sort of arrive back in a place of, of painlessness to a degree, so that you can look at the thing that you've been through. You want to talk about states of consciousness. what
0: we've talked about we've been talking about this but our retreat uh is for right gaining access to states of inspiration Mm -hmm. how that's done in other words priming ourselves to be open to the muse priming ourselves to create and be inspired then there's the composing of the actual piece Mm -hmm. um which is another state of consciousness and i would say that that state of, of writing new work is almost like a free associative state or is a free associative state, letting whatever comes, come. And trying, as we were talking about before, the idea of being primed to do that without the superego editing as you go. Right. Right. So so right. being able to be in a state of, of consciousness where you are able to let words flow through you which is both informed by the historical, informed by the unknown, and the unconscious. Uh, maybe the muse is the unconscious. Um, yeah, I'm not,
1: I wonder if we are equating those, which is a thought experiment, right? Like, not yeah, experts, yeah. practitioners. It's a very important thing.
0: <laughs> it's well, it's to interesting do. to think, yeah, I think talking about what the unconscious is, is, of course really fun and interesting and has so much to do with these ideas of the shared myth and the collective unconscious and things like that and and what that all points to is i think that's when we that that's when i get interested in this idea of the divine and a state of faith Mm -hmm. that is that that really important acknowledgement of An intelligence, an unseen intelligence that is of us, but not us, and that we will never in this conscious state um, understand and that the not understanding it is really where a lot of the creativity comes from, right? It's like this, this knowing and not knowing and
1: Yeah, or not knowing how to categorize not, I think that there's that, that uncertainty. That's a productive uncertainty. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happens in really good fairy tales or really, really good myths. You don't really know what to make of it. And of course, the stories can be um, applied to a morality or applied to a kind of ethos, but that's not inherent. Uh, It's just the same as when politicians use data the way that they like. Um, totally (laughs) there's there's a kind of enormity of information that's present in these things and poems good poetry has this as well you're you don't know what to make of it that's why it sits with you there's Mm. this bigness it's speaking through this little gateway you're consciously interfacing with words and language that are making you feel things and think things and wonder things all simultaneously and that is that's why we can point to it and say it's coming from something bigger than consciousness you can't do that with only the conscious mind and there's a there's another layer to this idea of the unconscious and the what we have access to in creative state that i really want to bring up and that's like uh, this concept of the body the body storing memory the body keeping score that's that's a book oh my God. Um, that's you know that's trauma Uh, talk where we're sort of saying like what does the body hold on to but it's not just that there's an enormous amount of emotion memory experience wisdom that's stored in tissues in the the fluids of the body in our motions in the motion patterns that we develop from very young and this is not stuff that we can use our conscious mind to sift through for creative potential, it's stuff that you have to interface with in its own way, uh, and then let the sort of influence of come into language, their language realm. And there's like a lot. There's a lot there. There's so much there. I mean, that's the power of somatics. Of somatic work is not really unlocking because um, it's not like it's locked up, but. Simply interfacing with, relating to these other ways of knowing, these other stories of the body, of the body right. space, right?
0: Here so we find ourselves
1: can go only so far. the, the critical mind, can take right?
0: Us. And that came much later. I mean, I I think, I think back to you know, I was reading The White Goddess by Robert Graves, which is such an interesting book. Basically, the the grammatical history of poetry, which is just such a, it's so dense and interesting, but, um, but so much of it seems to come back to this idea of poetry as the original state of consciousness, and are in a way crude but beautiful attempt at translating the experience of being conscious, hmm. which is our way as humans of doing that. I mean, it'd be interesting to think about other ways that consciousness translates from other beings. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna get into that, but, <laughs> but, we, but we are special. I mean, I would say in terms, you know- it,
1: Well, we're one, you or, of, to, we're one of some species that are sapient. We know of ourselves.
0: Yeah, and we well we know of ourselves in the way that we think knowing of ourselves is known. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean the tree could know of itself, we wouldn't know
1: how we it certainly knew of itself. Can't know what the tree thinks of itself. Right,
0: but um, but we are of a body, and that is how our body speaks. Is well, was one way, and we translate maybe through that. I you know it's it's interesting because psychologically so much we, we, you know, we think of, of memory in a certain way. We think of memory as being like a photograph or a set of empirically proven facts. And we, you know, our idea of truth is, is, is like that as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that seems a more recent idea of truth and fact and history uh, for obvious reasons, because somebody could say, oh, this is what happened and, and it's not what happened. But I think in terms of the self and this experience of the self in the world, we have so much license to explore our own history through listening to the body and the mind and its strangeness. And that for me is what I've learned to look to in writing poems because I'm. It gets at a truth of being, but it's dreamlike.
1: Hmm.
0: And dreams. I think dreams is dreams are, are really interesting in, in this conversation because we think of dreams as some sort of like biological result of the brain needing to, you know, be active in some way during the night, you know, instead of them being a kind of being as, as much a reality as this reality, why not? Um, and why not include that in the poem as reality in terms of it speaking towards the truth? Um I don't know. I'm going off the rails, but I, I want to get back to, I mean, we could, we could talk conceptually all day, but. um, Well,
1: no, um, because you were sort of hinting at this idea of like these different states. I think that's actually really fruitful for discussion because um, well, I mean, very scientifically, you can look at the wave patterns of the brain at different states and you can see, beta waves during waking and alpha waves during dreaminess and theta and delta waves during different levels of sleep. Um, the brain is doing different things at that time, but so is the body. There's a lot of connectedness. Um, so you're, you're experiencing different parts of what consciousness and unconsciousness are um, in all of those different states. And so that's a material thing, right? A, a physical thing that can be measured and observed. Uh, But then the experiences of those are uh, very, very flexible. Um, In the dream state, we have imagination happening. We have memories, this idea of memory and like things that we think are true, surfacing. But the impressions that we have of them are then being, um, I want to say the word morphed. (laughs) They're being altered in some way. Um, by what's happening to us now and what happened to us during the day and things that we're hopeful for in the future. So there's also this uh, quality of time that starts coming in um, and that it is a little abstract. It is a little bit like what's going on. What are we even talking about? But yeah, um, that is, that's important because there's a lot of content there. There's a lot of psychic content that's either conscious or unconscious that's being dealt with or experienced or remembered by the mind and the body. And then how does that affect us as creative practitioners? How does that come up when we're sitting down to write? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's also really interesting in terms of like, when do you get good ideas? You know, it's when you're about to fall asleep, when you're in that liminal space, when you're not focused so much, or when you're taking oh a God. walk and you're bored right. and you're, but, um. I know, isn't it always true that you're like in the shower? Yeah, and in the shower. You're dri- when I'm driving. Yeah, driving is like, so good. <laughs> right? yeah. you're, I mean, Ben, he, he writes Ben's so many been, poems when he's driving. And thank yeah, goodness Ben's for the like, record function, you know, because he's he's got that spaciousness. And also when you're doing something on quote autopilot, when you're going into flow, because you know where you're going, you know what you have to do. You don't have to consciously think about what your body's doing yeah. and why. You are drifting off into this enormity, this ether, and then you're getting all kinds of good stuff because it's not being forced, uh, because you're not simply in conscious thought, you are having that fringe of the unconscious enter into your conscious state. That is what fringe of the unconscious. about yoga nidra which is like one of the Uh,
0: tell me about yoga nidra what's what is that what we did before
1: no that was uh, a very simple rotation of consciousness but yoga nidra is yogic sleeping nidra just means sleep okay um it is very similar to a guided meditation uh but it is not meditation um you are not attempting to observe or affect what the mind is doing you are allowing the mind uh, and the the fact that you are being guided and that you are completely off the hook for any kind of effort at all means that you're coming into a state of rest what yoga nidra does is uh, allows us to cycle through a couple of different states of consciousness in a short frame of time and we also see that we are sometimes simultaneously in different states of consciousness at mm. the same time, which is pretty cool.
0: That is um, cool. It makes sense.
1: They, the they, have done <laughs> the studies. And we, we've observed, it's been observed that in Yoga Nidra, you are experiencing multiple brainwave states, either, again, in quick succession or at the same time, which is wild. Um, so it is conscious sleeping. That's the most succinct way of describing it you are using guided meditative uh techniques like the rotation of consciousness through the body um awareness of breath without modification of breath uh and suggested sensation and visualization um which is sort of priming you to cycle into these different states
0: um I love that mm-hmm. that's you know I've been thinking so much about dream for for and preparing for a dream podcast, thinking about dream versus reverie and the different states that the mind can get in and what the differences are. But I, you know, and there's no doubt about it that in certain dream states, I if I can, these lines come to me that the most powerful of my of of all my books, they the most powerful moments I I seem seem to be plucked from dreams or in a semi dream state and uh, to think about harnessing that in a practice is incredible. Um, Just the term, what, you know, what what was it? Yogic sleeping or conscious, conscious
1: sleeping. Yeah.
0: Conscious sleeping. (laughs) So interesting. What an interesting paradox. It's also, it's a
1: deeply restful practice. So it's doing that thing that I was alluding to before, which is it's giving the, the artist, the poet, um, this relaxation and rest that many of us are, are so, so lacking. Um, oh my God. We're so lacking. So so lacking. I'll just say all of us, almost nobody gets enough rest right now. No the current.
0: Well, situation. the right kind of rest.
1: Yeah. Um, It gets you rest, which is good, but it also, it gives you a different experience of your own consciousness. Um, I actually want to read a very, very brief, excerpt from one of my many books on yoga nidra by kamini desai dr kamini desai yoga nidra and brainwave states the initial stages of yoga nidra happen between alpha and theta brainwave states here dreamlike thoughts and images are experienced at a distance you may have thoughts in yoga nidra but you are not interacting with them in the same way They are distant from you like a radio in another room. Though the voice of the mind is still there, it is not disturbing in any way, nor are you participating in what it says in the way that you would in the waking state. It is just there talking away just as the radio does, but you are not talking back. Often at this level of yoga nidra, you may have dreamlike images, thoughts, or feelings moving through. These often blend with the voice and the guidance of the facilitator, creating a kind of wakeful dream. This is because the first level of yoga nidra crosses the dream state and can be experienced in this dreamlike way. And then the deeper states of yoga nidra happen in the theta brainwave state. And experiences here can include drifting in and out of hearing. Uh, It goes on, but in and out of actual sleep. Um, and I think that, again, coming back to my favorite word, oscillation, that oscillation is where the power is, um, because we are being these travelers, and we're shifting through, and those differences are being highlighted in a way that they won't be normally, normally mm-hmm. being, you wake up, you're awake for 12, 14, 16 hours, and then you go to sleep, right? You have these mm-hmm these long periods where you're in a very similar state of consciousness. In yoga nidra, we're doing all the states of consciousness and we are seeing the shift. We're witnessing the shift. We are just having the shift happen. Um, And that is what's very cool about it. Um, That's why we get access to latent unconscious images, um, psychic material that we can't think of actively. We can't sit down at our desk and plumb the depths of our unconscious with our conscious mind. That's Mm. what this technique is for. So actually yoga nidra it's, it's excellent for uh, working through stored trauma in the body. Um, it's, It's good to have a trauma conscious facilitator because that can be very stimulating, but it's excellent for, Working up or coming into an awareness about memories or thoughts or beliefs that have been sort of plaguing you in your waking life. And that also means plaguing your creative practice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, there's a very therapeutic quality to it. But that's not the only thing. You know, it's just one of these wonderful panaceas. It's incredibly good.
0: <laughs> it reminds me of. Giuseppe Savitaris talking about Wilfred Bion's ideas around negative capability and faith mm. and how the psychoanalyst adopts a position of oscillating awareness that is outside of their own history and mm. uh, conscious desire and that in adopting this position, their conscious consciousness is open and receptive to the ideas and the consciousness of the analysand and in that state they're able to i guess create a new meaning together Mm -hmm. right without either one's um controlling uh wants or desires um
1: yeah or the patterns of the past right
0: the patterns of the exactly the which patterns in of yoga the past we would a call
1: one. a samskara the pattern a
0: samskara interesting we
1: also have this i i love that you brought up negative capability because it's not the same thing but it's very similar sounding to yep. this concept of the vikalpa the negative desire the negative rule the the un Investigated or even unaware belief that we have that is controlling our conscious actions and the way that we are interacting with our creative mm-hmm. work, or also just in the world.
0: Well, well, that's psychoanalysis in a n- nutshell. I mean, <laughs> it, there's so the, well, okay. So, so much of the work is maybe acknowledging uh, that we have what's the, the right. Well acknowledging what we know and and are not looking at uh and it takes it takes because like entering certain states in in safe spaces uh primed locations Mm -hmm. you know the poem for example an analytic room a yogic teachers um process with a student in order to gain access to what is there but not being looked at repressed material mm-hmm. um that is and what's the fucking point of that but to overcome defeating habits that to are overcome. getting in the way of newness
1: or, or limiting beliefs right yeah limiting I mean, we can look beliefs, at this right. in, a, in a less charged light as well like a Vipalma, mm-hmm. a good example of a very not charged one would be if you had a belief that all poems had to be about trees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, this is not something that's discussed. You're not coming to the poetry class or coming to your writing desk and thinking, uh, well, I have to write a poem about a tree today. Which tree will it be? That's not what we're talking about. It's an like unconscious unable, idea you that you can't look at
0: other people's poems because you're like, these aren't about trees. Yeah, it's not about a a trees. It's not
1: even a poem. What yeah. the hell is this? Right? And like, so for some people, this might be a very real belief. Like, I don't care about anything that isn't a poem about a tree. But this is—it's like, well, if you had no concept of poetry outside of poems about trees, you would be limited in your Mm -hmm. ability to write appreciate listen to or be impacted by poetry um and this is actually i mean i'm sure there are those amongst us who have these sort of i'll just call them unconscious biases because it's similar Mm -hmm. to that about what we expect a poem to be like yeah this is like what in our I poems... think a good poem is, right? right? There are well, when so many sit... unconscious patterns around that that are limiting our yeah. abilities to write the bad poems that can get us to stuff that will become a good poem. <laughs> right.
0: I love that. <laughs> right, because in terms of our own work, is if you sit down to write a poem and you think, you know, unconsciously, you're like, I'm trying to write a poem uh, that will please my mother or something, you know, like that or something, you know, you're not even aware of the fact that you're, or you're trying to write a poem that so-and-so will like, or you're trying to write a poem where people will see you as a victim because you need to be seen as a victim because you were never seen as a victim that you were at one point or something like that. (laughs) No experience there. Um.
1: (laughs) No, these are such great examples. And yeah, you see how, it starts to it's, ripple into this giant book of rules that right. we are all following all the time
0: and you can the repetition compulsion is is really apt here too because a lot of times if you're not a, you keep trying to write the same poem to get something right and it's like okay well it's time to get it it's time to say it right so you can move on yeah, you know yep. and i think getting honest about about what about what your feelings are about something and you know or or if you're clinging to something in your work that that you believe is the only poem you can write. I, you know, there's, there's some sort of, well, I guess it's a self-limiting is, and, and if we, and and not, it's not good or bad. It's not, I'm doing something and it's bad. It's, it is simply being curious about it and maybe even including that curiosity in the poem itself, right? So. right, uh,
1: It's also being unwilling To be limited. Uh, But that's not the same thing as having no containment or boundaries around what your creative practice is. Really good point. Yeah. These are important distinctions to make because we don't, what we want to become aware of is what is limiting us without our consent. And then we can work to have a new relationship to those limits that are about autonomy. About creative autonomy, what we are choosing. This is the difference. We are choosing. What we are choosing. Mm-hmm.
0: What's well, a lot of times, what we think we're choosing is not, is somebody else's belief totally. about what is and isn't. And always it comes back, and I think you and I are completely on the same page about this, but it really comes back to being able to listen and have a conversation with yourself. So that you can listen and have a conversation with others mm-hmm. authentically, mm-hmm. and you're not trying to act under the watchful eye of a past. Um. Well, let me put this another way:
1: a past authority, a past
0: authority. It could be societal and or and parental and in both or self. And I, Sometimes it's or often. self, right? And there's no real reason t- to, if it's not making you, you know, I think a lot of us are frustrated and, and unsatisfied with what our practice, our writing practice and what we're producing and it, it getting curious and um, serious about the work that it takes to be In our own body and in this world, it always comes to an ontological Mm. state, this discussion. This is like, what is it to be in this world? What is it it to be in this world and to speak and to listen and to write it down and to share it with another person? And what does it mean to record my experience, my personal, deeply fraught personal experience on the page? And why is that relevant to another person? Um, Am I recording... Uh, am i entertaining am, am i furthering consciousness am i trying to be loved am i trying to feel good D- am i being masochistic like all these questions are um well they kind of are the work they are the pro- they for me that's poetry all those questions and um getting out of the this is what a palm is, and you're sort of. I think. You know what I've. Doing. Doing the work of getting back into the body has been incredible because. I don't know, this is kind of a. a a hard right turn, actually, but I just started thinking about how I've been doing so much more yoga lately, mm-hmm. and it's taken me a long time to get back to yoga after not doing it for a really long time, and um, I didn't feel safe in my body, and I was scared to to hear what it had to say, mm. I'm going to be honest with you, I it was too much trauma there um, that, that I just, and I, you know, at first I was really self-flagellating about it hating my body, um, feeling like I needed to, to control and command my body, Mm. not being able to, um, I had to do a lot of mental work to get to a place where I could come to yoga again and then start that conversation. And that's brought forth so much more. Um,
1: yeah, that's, i think so many of us have stored fears and judgments about the body um this circles back to what we sort of started with which was like we end up saying in the in the intellect a lot um mm-hmm. we are and you know the intellect is great we're not making it an enemy it's awesome we do so much great right. stuff at the intellect <laughs> but uh if we're hiding in the intellect from embodiment if we're hiding in the in the critical thinking mm-hmm. from critically necessary feeling and and sensory. That's we're just missing out on a lot. Uh, I'll just I'll keep it penned into just the creative practice, right? Like we're not trying to heal everybody's wounds and fix everything right. all the time. Of it's course. like okay, you know, we we're all alive. It's, it's all gonna we're all gonna be alive until we die. You know, it's like <laughs> it's gonna be all the stuff. That's happening during that but for the creative practice we can't we can't um be satisfied with hiding from all that embodiment really has to offer and um yeah my as I was ruminating before we chatted today I was I was thinking like you know what if someone's like what is what does embodiment even matter like you know how do you rebut that and I just I, my dumb my dumb example is like all right, well, say you had to write a poem about a dandelion, you know, something that's really casual, some weed in your yard. Are you just gonna sit here and imagine it and think and 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 conjure it from air, and then right. think that you're gonna hit the fucking nail on the head about yeah. what that dandelion is and right. what it looks like and smells like and how it shivers, you know? and all the bugs that are on it you can't conjure up a bug you're not an all-knowing deity you can't make a bug from thin air you've got to watch the fucking bug the bug is alive in the world it's a physical thing and uh you know i all all the things i just said about this imaginary dandelion it's all made up because i'm not looking at one right now i would have much more in- interesting information if i was being present with such a dandelion and i think we all know that we all know yeah. that you can't write an ode to a thing that you're not witnessing loving sensing right. feeling watching being with um or you and- can but it's not going to land anywhere because it's all in the imagined state of love it's not actual it's not actual adoration
0: it's funny because I'm doing this class on imagination and poetry with Ben Fama right now. And the first thing we read was Lorca's lecture on uh, imagination and inspiration. And he, you know, his stance is that the imagination has, is, is crushed under the the awesome, beautiful weight of reality. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And that it's the, the poet, uh, the poet, um, paradoxically reality is stranger and more truthful and everything that they need. And it's out there or it's all, you know, it's all around us and we are of it. And it it, that is where, um, that is where the most incredible poetry comes from. And I think Rolka would definitely agree. Right. Um, and Roka going to stare at the panther in a zoo for half a day and then, you know, writing that incredible poem, um, it is it is the witnessing of the world and being in and which is being in the body which is embodiment um I mean we could say you know that it's again just to just to not be uh absolutist about it is that it's not imagination bad no no kind of thing but but that that is where the that is where inspiration comes from is embodying the world and
1: self senses witnessing experience yeah the imagination is so powerful so wonderful so great um but again it's all about why would you limit everything to just what the imagination can do outside of partnership with the rest of our tools you can't build a house with just a hammer you can't you know It's just, it's a good, it's a good tool. Don't. Yeah. But don't make it do all the work by itself. Like that sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: There is some element of the poetic event, both the process of preparing and editing poetry and then the object of the poem itself that speaks to and of human consciousness, both the writers and the readers and really, what I think is important to note here, that we do all of this through the entertainment of poetry's themes, the humor of wordplay, the story, the narrative, that are of interest to the reader. And that is personal and universal, if done right. And I'll read a little from Robert Graves' White Goddess here, which notes that quote, the function of poetry is religious evocation of the muse, its use of the experience of mixed exaltation and horror that her presence excites. In this way, I think, there is the element of poetry that is historical, mythological, conversational with the divine. And of course, that would speak to the reader too, who also shares the historical and mythological conversation with the divine. Graves also notes, who has ever been able to explain what theme is poetic and what is unpoetic, except by the effect that it has on the reader. Mm. The rediscovery of lost rudiments of poetry may help to solve the question of theme. If they still have validity, they confirm the intuition of the Welsh poet, Alan Lewis, who wrote, quote, the single poetic theme of life and death, the question of what survives of the beloved. So our themes surrounding love, life, death, the existence of humanity stretch back to the beginning, to the word and the relation between people. Poetry, in a way, is, of course, our translation of consciousness, our Rilkean who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic orders, which seems like crying out to the muse. And the silence of the muse is the sound of our voice i had this thought the silence of the muse is the sound of our voice it's like i guess what we were talking about before what we were, it is an attitude of faith towards the unknown mm. but the muse is a strange thing as we need this sort of personification of inspiration as if it is a completely you know it is outside of us our 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 creativity does not come from us alone it comes from another unseen source
1: that personification gives us but i
0: guess people think of the muse as another person too sometimes
1: yeah like the the relationship to that thing has to exist for us to converse with it it's hard to have a conversation with oneself. Um, I love that I love what you read, especially because the this concept of the muse or the divine, um, which are slippery terms, they feel like they could be the unconscious, the things that we don't know we think, the things that are underlying, the subtle realms that permeate everything. And that speaks to that idea of it being within us but also something that's not just us something that's outside of us that we do have to come into some kind of conversation with Mm -hmm.
0: but did you see the muse as fitting in somehow with the yogic practices that you employ I'm thinking two of the Upanishads um I don't know if that's
1: relevant here but (laughs) the Upanishads are always relevant they're always relevant (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, yeah, well,
0: I, I mean, it's certainly divine, um, evocation, uh, it's certainly poetry.
1: Wait, what was the question though? Uh, do I think about the muse? Well, where were you thinking about, well,
0: I do feel like it's kind of a lost, well, grave certainly feels like it's a lost thing in, po- in poetry that it has been forgotten that.
1: Well, I mean, you even mentioned the muse and people roll their eyes. Right. I know part of that, well, is this, that, like the, Car- like that Cartesian um, sort of like over empirical idea about like what we think, why we think it and what mm-hmm. we're interacting with, with writing uh, or any kind of creative act. <laughs> I think that it's mysterious. It's, it's a mysterious thing that we have to imagine entities for uh, is a powerful thing to acknowledge the muse, the parts of the unconscious that are informing our real powerful acts of creation, whether they're in poetry or art or any other kind of expression. There's a mystery attached to all of this. There's something that we can't put our finger on. Um, And if some of the modern condition is uh, bent on dismissing that as therefore unusable or Uh, unimportant i think we get to push back on that and insist Mm -hmm. that the mystery and the subtle the subtle things that permeate all are worthwhile uh to acknowledge uh simply because we can't put categories on them we can't really give them clothes and shake their hand and and critically analyze them in the conscious realm there's something really big uh, and that enormity, we were talking about that before. There's there's, there's too much there for us to um, really codify. That is part of the mystery that makes it powerful, is that we cannot wrap our conscious minds around it. Mm. So dismissing it or being uninterested in it or um, being you know, sort of critical of it as an interesting tool for a a construct, thinking about the creative process. You know, I think that's really small minded.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I do. And, and good, good luck to those people. I'm not not interested.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You brought up the Upanishads too. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's, how are we, how can we think about these things that we can't think about? That's, that's what poetry does. That's what all the creative practices do. How can we possibly think about these things that we can't think about i was
0: i've I keep having this thought that like it's so good to not know everything because yeah, <laughs> you know, I always think of how in in the Norse mythology, Odin drank from that well and he saw everything and his fucking life was ruined and he just drank alcohol for the rest of it and didn't eat anything and had a sour shitty look on his face the whole time yeah. it's like it's super not just paranoid, about a super paranoid god Odin, right okay. yeah i mean it's funny to be paranoid when you know everything but um <laughs> but the paradox is is yeah uh i i think uh i think I think sometimes, ah, oh, I was looking out the window, I remember, randomly, in the bathroom, was looking out the window, and I thought to my, I just, I pictured myself outside reading a book. How romantic is that? And I, and I thought to myself, we're here on earth to read a fucking book. And I, do, I don't mean, like, to, to, to just read books. I mean, to have something in our hands that we don't know that is not ours that somebody else made
1: beautiful We're here on earth to have something in our hands that we don't
0: that we don't understand right and that that we can look at and learn from like and however that translates whether whether we're learning by by watching a beetle roll some dung across the ground you know it's 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 amazing I, I, i thought to myself if i was an unimaginable infinite creature that knew everything Hmm. i would be very desirous to be put on an earth where i didn't know everything and where i would have a finite life right to
1: to how how incredible that would be you are literally describing like the, the philosophy of like the samkhya organization of the universe like the that's what that's what the core belief uh about the organization of the universe and uh duality is in uh um, like that pure consciousness Tantra. was like this is fucking boring. Like give me something right. give me something to desire, give me something right. to love, give me something to hate, give me something to not know, being oneness and all and everything all the time, you know, it's it sounds, Misery. It sounds sounds amazing for a moment but then you're you're stuck there i mean yeah there's um you need it you need that which antagonizes you need that which makes you aware of your incompleteness and that's what life is um yeah
0: to be aware of your incompleteness yes yeah and to be aware of the veil that is down i think of the veil i see a black veil and i'm I'm not afraid of it I feel very intrigued by it I feel I feel it's almost erotic you know it's like mm-hmm. it and then and then I reject the erotic and then it's it's beyond it's completely beyond the erotic it's not you know it's um it's how we get to love and lose you know like love's love's feeling of being having no ending and yet it's possibility of ending, you know, Mm. that, that, that conflict, um, the poem never finished yet finished Mm. the, the, the line of poem poetry that you write that is always lacking in quite getting at it, you know, and then these moments of feeling like, (gasps) you know, sometimes I, you know, it's rare. I feel like I want to, I've, this would be, a contentious decision, but I fantasize about making an anthology of perfect poems mm-hmm. because sometimes there are certain poems out there in the world that I read. And I think that's a perfect fucking poem. Perfect. Some, some pitch was reached. Yeah. Musically, you know, the, the line breaks, mm-hmm. the words, the title, everything feels like it's clicked mm. perfectly. And, and if a poet could ever hope to have a couple in their in their au revoir, but, but two, of course, acknowledging that those, perf- those perfect poems are not even per- They're flawed too, but they're flawed perfectly. Perfectly
1: flawed. Well, there's also something powerful there around this idea of like, well, when you have the perfect poem and you've made the little perfect package and the bow is tied exactly right. There's something unreal about it. So you've achieved mm-hmm. some kind of, uh, you know, sublime perfection. And then there's a power in perceiving that which is completely perfect. And and, and doesn't it and, feel like and destroying it just a little bit or unraveling it just a little yeah. bit? And yeah. how well does that undo the perfection or does it amplify it? There's some kind of right. incredible threshold to be crossed there. Well, there's something
0: hideous and terrifying in its perfection and you want to mar it a little bit. Like yes. sometimes I read a poem of somebody else's that's so good, I feel angry. I have to put it down. <laughs> I put it down I put it face down on the table and I said, Fuck. Damn it. You know, I wanna undo it almost. You know, that's how much I love it. Like I I love, love I love that circle. You must <laughs> yeah. destroy Passion, I love it.
1: And man. That's the passion. It inspires passion. And passion can go light or dark really easily.
0: It really can. <laughs> passion can go. I know. Well, that's what's passionate about. It's a little darkness. It's a little, dark. It's a little tinge of darkness.
1: <laughs> this is what's fun about being a, a tantric, a tantrika, and not like a classical yogi. Like, none of these things uh, are are in our Uh, category of like what to diminish or get rid of we're like this is all so fun to be in this realm of play and desire and Mm -hmm. antagonism and lights and darks um and that's the tantric yogic philosophy is that yeah tantra is a really big umbrella term for a lot of different traditions and practices but it is quite differentiated from what is often referred to as classic yoga um because tantra is interested in interfacing exploring acknowledging and even worshiping embodiment the physical the dual the light and dark all the sides of all the things um whereas in classical yoga there's this strong emphasis on the mind uh, mm-hmm. meditation going inward um it's mental more so than physical. But when people hear yoga, they're like down dog. Yeah, that's what we call yoga. I mean, the whole the whole tradition of uh, like India achieving um, achieving independence and then sort of the spark of the reinvention and reintegration of what seemed like a, a national modality of movement, something to identify with, something that was part of heritage that that stuff you know it's pretty modern the way that that all came over to the west and has Mm -hmm. been adopted in uh modern india um yoga yoga just means union and there's a lot of different ways to do yoga but generally and traditionally it was prescribing meditation and so yoga asana the physical postures we think of that as yoga it's useful to say yoga in English here in the States and have people understand that you mean sometimes we're doing down dog and sometimes we're doing Shavasana, right? Like the those at the end. Um, So, you know, it's, it's okay. That's how language works. We just sort of adopt it, but there are these very particular traditions that we are hearkening back to um, and some of them are more focused on the modalities of the mind and um, seeking enlightened state, uh, in order to get to the non-dual or to oneness. And some are much more interested in sort of like throwing everything in and seeing what you get. Um, And so that's the tantra. That's the tantra way.
0: So the tantra is more throwing everything in, celebrating duality. We we
1: deny nothing. I mean, it's why when you hear the word tantra, so
0: I'm, I'm, I'm hooked already. Yeah.
1: Well, it's why when you hear the word tantra, you generally think about well, you think about this sort of bastardization about what that is in the West, which is oh, that's like the sex stuff, right? There's totally a a little branch of of advanced practice in certain modes of Tantra where like sex, either the withdrawal from or the full immersion into and sexual practices is a thing. But it's just like this little thing that some people do. And it's like not the the whole thing. Um, Oh,
0: this is going to be an editing nightmare.
1: I'm so sorry. (laughs) This is all
0: my Fucking, we have rambling
1: conversations
0: we look forward to seeing uh lucky 10 of you at the week-long retreat in beautiful callus vermont east callus vermont um we're gonna have a fourth of july to remember
1: (laughs) uh yeah we're gonna seek out true freedom